Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we're going to tap the knowledge and wisdom of our guests to learn about the important topic of inflation. There's probably been no bigger issue on investors' mind this year than inflation. After multiple decades of benign numbers, it has come back with a vengeance, with year-over-year CPI reaching levels not seen since the 1970s. But for investors, the biggest question isn't what has happened in the past, it's where we go from here. We have discussed the topic of inflation with a lot of our guests, and we wanted to put together a compilation of the best insights they have provided not only to try to forecast inflation, but to offer a better understanding of the factors that influence it. As always, thank you for listening. Now let's talk about some of the important drivers and investing considerations when it comes to inflation. Before we talk about where we are today with inflation, it is first important to understand how we got here. Despite the fact that many experts have predicted inflation at various times throughout the last several decades, those predictions have never materialized. This has been a result of several main forces. In our interview with Orkin Financial founder, Colin Roach, we talk about what those forces are and why they're important. There's been these three major trends that I think have been these long-term deflationary trends. And I was wondering if I maybe just went through each one of them, if you could list maybe why that trend has been deflationary. And also if you think that might be changing in the future in terms of, of the trends. So that the first one is technology. So you, can you talk about why technology has held down inflation? So it kind of just goes back to that same thing we were talking about before with the iPhone, where technology, it, it's basically... It's deflationary in the sense that it's it's compressing all of these technologies into smaller and smaller components, literally. And so it has this deflationary effect where the not only is the turnover much greater and the supply creation much more efficient, um, but you're just you're able to produce so much. You're able to get so much more out of smaller and smaller components now that def- our technology just has this very long term deflationary trend in it because of that element. The second one I wanted to ask about is demographics. That's another thing people have pointed to as sort of a long-term deflationary trend. I wonder if you could talk about why that is, and also, is that something that might be changing sort of in the future? Demographic trends are deflationary in a lot of the developed world because essentially comes down to aging population and slowing population growth. So this ultimately comes down to reduced aggregate demand. So from the demand side of the equation, you just have a reduction in demand because we literally have a slowing rate of the number of people that are coming into um, the economy. And you also just have this this big change in the way that the d- demand dynamic is actually flowing through the economy. So for instance, um, you know, after the baby boomers were all born, you had this sort of big boom in in housing. And housing is such a huge component of the economy that, for instance, from the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s and the 2000s, you had a huge, huge amount of demand for housing because you had all of these people who were suddenly, you know, born into the population that needed to buy a home. And as the population gets older and the the rate of change of population growth changes, that trend, it just, it all kind of slows down. And so it's not necessarily, I shouldn't say it's a deflationary trend. It's a disinflationary trend in that it means that the it's going to be consistent with a a slowing rate of inflation over time because the the rate of aggregate demand slows down. And so this is sort of the big trend that you're seeing in, especially in developed Europe 
Japan is sort of the classic example where you have this closed economic system there where the, the population is not growing and the population is aging. And so you just have this sort of inherent deflationary or disinflationary trend inside of the economy because of the demographic trends. And the last one I would ask you about is globalization. Why would that put downward pressure on inflation over time? So globalization basically comes down to the fact that uh, we're essentially, we're outsourcing the production of a lot of things and we're, we're outsourcing the, the labor of a lot of things. So, um, the way to think of it is that it basically through competition, it's basically putting downward pressure on domestic prices because you're, you're creating things for a lower value overseas and then importing them. But you're also, you've got the, the workforce has in a lot of ways, it's opened up to this globalized network now where you can, um, you know, you can, you can jump on, you know, like various websites and have people in India or these low wage countries perform tasks that would have otherwise been performed domestically. And so this competition for, um, essentially labor and products, goods and services has put downward pressure on inflation through globalization. So that the inverse is that this kind of, it kind of creates, um, a reversion to mean sort of where the, um, the, the developing countries are actually increasing a higher rate of inflation than they otherwise would because they're getting paid from these richer countries. Whereas the richer countries are sort of, they're slowing it, it, their rate of inflation to some degree because they're able to take advantage of the, the lower cost of goods and labor in developing parts of the world. After the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, the Federal Reserve began utilizing a technique called quantitative easing that involves a purchase of financial assets, primarily bonds, to exert influence over longer-term interest rates. Many economists believe it would ultimately lead to high inflation, but it never did. We turn to Colin again to explain why. What something like quantitative easing does at an operational level is pretty simple. It basically, so think of it outside of all of the, the government's other actions. Actually, think of it inside of a situation where the government is running a surplus. So the, the government is actually taxing more than it's spending in, in, in this environment. And then you have the Fed is out there doing quantitative easing. Well, what's technically happening is that the aggregate government is issuing now fewer bonds. They're actually taxing more than they're than they're spending. So they're actually taking money out of the private sector to a certain degree. And what the Fed is doing then is the Fed is taking the composition of the existing private sector assets and they're merely changing them because what quantitative easing does is quantitative easing involves the Fed expanding their balance sheet. They create reserves or deposits and they swap them. They go out and buy bonds. And so the, the Fed is actually buying the bonds, taking them out of the private sector, putting them on their balance sheet, which is functionally it's not a, a balance sheet that's in the economy. So they're removing these bonds and they're swapping them with cash. So it's almost like a situation where they're essentially swapping your bond account into like a checking account, a deposit account now. And the question is, is like when you, if you were to swap a savings account for a checking account, well, would you go out and spend more money? I mean, in all likelihood, you know, in your mind, you have the same exact amount of money you actually have lower income because now you're earning less interest on your account. And so what the Fed does is at an operational level is very similar to that operation of changing a, a savings account into a checking account. And so outside of the rest of the government's actions, there's no real operational reason for this to cause high inflation, even though, you know, we kind of get into the whole discussion before about definitions and like the government is technically creating more money 
but they're also removing bonds. And so, you know, just because they're adding more money, does it mean that we have more financial assets? No. So that's really the kicker there is that at, at the Fed specific level, they're not doing anything that on its own should cause a lot of inflation. Whereas my tone has been very different in the last like three years since COVID in, was initiated, mainly because, not because of what the Fed was doing, but because of what the government, the treasury was doing. The treasury spent, you know, $3 trillion in 2020 and then 2021 again. And so these are real measurable balance sheet increases where the government is now they're literally printing new bonds and issuing them. So they're, they're issuing new financial assets that the private sector now holds on their balance sheet. So in a way, if you, if you think of it, if you wanted to say that, um, the government prints assets or think of it, a better example is thinking of the treasury as, as literally printing money rather than bonds to finance their deficits. Well, that's the situation where you actually have a huge increase in the private sector financial asset balance. It's not so much about what the Fed is doing. It's more about what the aggregated government is doing. And so the Fed, in a lot of ways, they come in after the fact and they change the composition, but they don't necessarily increase the composition on their own. But monetary policy is only part of the equation. And one of the big changes we have seen in the wake of the pandemic is a massive increased use of fiscal policy. And that is a game changer because it puts money directly into people's hands. And when you give people money, they are likely going to spend it. Combine that with significant supply chain issues around the globe, and you have a recipe for the high inflation we're seeing now. Some are predicting that we are in for an extended period of inflation like we saw in the 70s, but those comparisons may not be fair. We talked to Shaughnessy Asset Management's Aaron Stanhope, who helped us understand why the current situation is very different than what we saw in the 70s. He first explained how fiscal policy is much different now than it was then. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, Look, I mean, fiscal policy was was so incredibly different in the 70s and um, just the, the structural setup as a whole. Um, you had um, Johnson's Great Society, so there was massive fiscal spending around that, around social programs. You had the Vietnam War um, that was going on. So you were we were running massive deficits. Um, and again, also at this time where um, for, the, for the, the first period prior to the uh, around 1972 or so, um, the dollar was effectively pegged to gold. Um, so, so that was all very inflationary. It had lots of impacts. Taxes were much, much higher um, at the personal level and the corporate level. A lot of people don't really associate taxes with inflation, um, but there's, there's kind of this um, implicit link that exists um, and sort of how taxes are structured. So in the kind of going back a little bit earlier to let's say like like world war ii you had um all the soldiers came home needed to be employed you had the rise of unions through the 1950s um and the uh early 1960s which kind of peaked around 1965 about a third of the u.s population um was unionized it's it's about a third of that today so it's much much lower Think unions, think negotiated bargaining power in terms of wages. So wages were going up and you see that in all the charts that you, that you look at. The challenge though, is that if your wages are going up and inflation is running at, you know, 10 plus percent, and there are no cost of living adjustments to tax brackets, you've sort of got this push pull effect where your wages are going up, but your taxes are also going up. So between 1965 and 1980. Um, the average tax rate, um, or I should say the tax rate on the average workers went up 50 plus percent. 
So, um, so that's a, that's a challenge. And then on top of that, from a corporate perspective, when you're running, um, in terms of a period that's highly inflationary, inflation is really a tax on your, on your top line. So your revenue versus taxes, uh, uh, you know, explicit taxes are, are effectively on your bottom line. So what ends up happening is, is when you look at the real tax that you're paying as a corporation, in a lot of cases, it can be a hundred over a hundred percent of your earnings. Okay. So why is that important? So then all of a sudden you don't want to be generating income. And so you're going to do things like, um, conglomerate. Um, you're going to buy firms, even if they're unprofitable, you're going to buy unprofitable firms to protect your profitable firms. Personally, executives are not going to want high compensation packages. They're going to want lots of, of perks, um, like airplanes and homes and whatever it is. So there's this conspicuous spending that occurs, everything that you can do to push everything onto the expense side, um, of the income statement to push down your earnings. So all of that promotes spending. It promotes things like M and a, it pr promotes, um, you know, over overspending at the corporate level. And that's all, you know, very, very different than what we experienced today. The average tax rate was like 48%, I think, um, during that period. So massive, massive changes. In addition to the fact that there's was really an explicit mandate again, because of world war II, that employment remained high. Um, there was a fear also of communism as well. And the greatest way to avoid something like com communism influencing the population is to keep people employed, um, and making money, um, chicken in every pot, you know, going back even further things, things of that nature. So they're kind of all these like cultural and societal factors that were influencing the decisions that were being made on the fiscal side of the ledger that I think were, were all really inflationary. The differences don't just stop with fiscal policy though. Monetary policy was also very different then. Here's Aaron explaining why. So monetary policy. So when you kind of look at it at the highest level, um, you know, today you can look at something like money growth. So, so M2 growth. And so that was growing, it was growing a little bit higher in the seventies, but not too dissimilar from today. There was a choice that was effectively made. So at the time the Fed had less of, let's say less of a dual mandate. It was really technically Congress's dual mandate for employment, um, and price stability. And there was this belief in the Phillips curve, which is basically this idea that there's a trade-off between employment and inflation. If you let inflation, uh, I should say, if you try to take inflation down, you're going to have higher unemployment and vice versa. And so because of this mandate really to keep people employed, the policy perspective was let's let inflation run a bit high. Um, and it effectively then kind of got out of control. Um, but there was not a political will to tolerate unemployment to rise effectively. So that allowed it to, to run. And you can kind of really see the difference today in terms of what the effectively the economy's reaction function was where, um, there can be lots of money in the system, but if it's not used, it really doesn't matter. And so the way to measure that is the velocity of money where in the seventies, the velocity of money was increasing. Versus today, it's actually been decreasing um, with all of the monetary stimulus that's been been occurring. So it's effectively not being used um, in, the, in the system today. Perhaps the biggest issue right now with inflation is whether the Federal Reserve will be able to stop it and if it can do so without taking down the stock market and the economy in the process. We asked 42 Macro founder Darius Dale for his take on the issue. 
Their tools to deal with inflation are much more powerful than their tools to deal with deflation. I mean, the problem with dealing with deflation is eventually you hit the lower boundary, the lower bound of, of the policy rate, and you have to result to sort of more indirect measures of controlling the, the supply and, and price of money, i.e. quantitative easing for guidance, you know, uh, regulatory policy in terms of, you know, uh, lending ratios and all that stuff on bank balance sheets. It just becomes a lot harder to sort of, you know, fight the good fight, if you will, if you're trying to stave off deflation. Fighting inflation is easy. You can take the policy rate to infinity. <laughs> you can contract the balance sheet back to zero. I mean, you know, like, you know, the, they can get rid of inflation as quickly as they want because ultimately their, their tools to deal with inflation are, are pretty obvious. They're, just, they're, they're designed to slow the economy. They're designed to, to weigh on excess demand relative to the productive capacity of the economy. The Fed, in, you know, as a function, um, in my opinion, as a function of the, the, the November jobs report and the October CPI data, which both came out, um, after they sort of, you know, sort of outline their, their, their path towards tapering, you know, the, you know, as a function of those data points, you know, the Fed basically said, hey, look, we have to reassess, reassess our expectation, our views on what the productive capacity of the U.S. and global economies are. And obviously in that reassessment, they realized that, hey, look, this sort of labor shortfall analysis, this framework that we've been anchoring on to, to maintain this pretty wacky, aggressive monetary policy in the context of an economy that's growing you know, several deviations above its trend growth rate, um, you know, to me, I think they, that that's when that really catalyzed that that big sea change. And ultimately, you know, and to, because of that reassessment, it really means that all they can do is slow growth, right? Like that's the only solution is, is, is taking the economy, taking demand out of the economy so that it matches the level of, of supply in the economy. And ultimately, that's what they, they have to do, um, if only because of their forward guidance function, Rates markets have already priced in basically, you know, terminal Fed funds rate of two percent, you know, and so or maybe a little bit more at this point after Bullard's comments last week, and so the reality is they, they have to do that stuff if they want to be successful in combating inflation because if they don't do what they, the markets are pricing in, then that'll result that'll effectively result in an easing and obviously add fuel to the fire, and I just don't think the political sort of scope or space there's no political space for them to add fuel to the fire on inflation right now. They can't be observed or seen by the general public as making this this thing worse. Um, you know, obviously there's no real recourse from that perspective. But again, I, I just think these are human beings who you know have their own Twitter accounts or the bare minimum they're reading the Wall Street Journal, and you know they understand that their impact on society is pretty great. And quite frankly, I just don't think that they want to bail the stock market out anymore. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, they've achieved a lot of their objectives in terms of you know kind of promoting maximum employment, you know, within the context of the pandemic. And obviously, you know, inflation is well above their, their target level. So, you know, there's really no reason for them to be as dovish. Although the Federal Reserve has significant conventional tools through interest rate policy and quantitative tightening to deal with inflation, it also has an unconventional one. It's words. That tool can be very effective, but it isn't a panacea. Epsilon Theory's Ben Hunt explains why. One of the things I learned from you, I was listening to a podcast you did with Phil Bach. It was a long time ago. It was way before the pandemic. And you know, one of the things you said on that podcast is basically any deflationary shock could be thrown at the market and the, the government slash Fed is going to deal with it. And that was before the pandemic happened. And obviously you were proven completely correct because they threw everything at the pandemic and that deflationary shock was dealt with very quickly. But I'm, wor I'm worried about the other side of it. And I'm wondering, you know, sure. what are the Fed's tools that they have for inflation without causing major problems for both the economy and the market? Because at least in the short term, you know, what they did to deal with that deflationary shock didn't really have any major negative implications. But it seems like what they have to deal with now may have some negative implications. So I'm wondering sort of what you think about where the Fed is right now and how they can deal with this inflation without having problems for the economy and the market. 
So they have no tools, right? To to your to your to your point, to your, to your point. What, what they've built is they built this Maginot line against deflationary shocks. Yeah, they they're fighting the last war, which is what always happens. And you know what happened to the Maginot line? You know the Russians went around it. They put the tanks through the Ardennes. You know what we have now? All of our, the tools in our toolkit, monetary policy toolkit. They're all designed for fighting deflationary shocks, all of it. So your, your point's a very good one. The only tool they've got is their words. The only tool they've got is their words. And they're really good with that toolkit. They're, they're really good with it, and they're the only game in town. So what I mean by that is we will continue, and this is something we talked about in kind of our, in our, our notes as well, we're now... Right now, we're in what's called a, a Fed put narrative. And that is the, the market, everyone knows that everyone knows the Fed's got our back. It's very positive for markets. What I mean by, I listened to, to Powell's presser yesterday. I'm sure you guys did too. And I thought it was pretty terrible. You know, I thought the body language was bad. I thought he's hemming and hawing. I thought the words he was saying, well, we've got seven meetings. Maybe we'll have seven hikes. I, I thought that was really market negative. What I knew from what we had been writing about and publishing about narrative is he could have hemmed and hawed a thousand percent more. It didn't matter. Anything he said was going to be interpreted by the market in a very market supportive way. And that's why as soon as, you know, as soon as the conference is over, you know what the quote unquote word of the day was on CNBC? Soothing. <laughs> Soothing. I can't make it up. You can't make it up. Right. But I knew, but we knew this was going to happen, right? Because you look at the language that's being used around central banks. It started with the Russian invasion when missionaries like Mohammed El Arian and everybody comes up and says, "Oh, you know, the Fed's got to be careful now. They've got to, you know, they got to step back from, you know, all these hikes and the like." And everybody said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the Fed's got to do. That's what the Fed's got to do." And so that's how anything the Fed said yesterday was going to be perceived as a market positive move. So the Fed will continue to use its narrative skills and tools to try to fight another day, right? Just They're just going to be doing this month by month and trying to avoid a disaster. Because at the end of the day, to your point, Jack, all they've got is their words, right? What, 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 what is... What is, what is what does 10 hikes mean when inflation is whatever, you know, 9%? <laughs> it's right. It's nothing, right? It's a little thimble full of water at a, at, a, at a raging fire. And that's what we've got. We've got embedded wage price inflation. So in, this, in, the, in the medium term, though, as a trader, Jack, I don't know what you do with that. The fact that they have no tools. Because they've got their words and they've got their narrative and on any kind of shorter or even medium time horizon, like we're seeing the last couple of days, man, that's all you need. With the potential for inflation to be above average for a while, many investors are looking to figure out how to position their portfolios for it. One option is to introduce additional asset classes like gold and commodities. There are some simple ways to do that and some more complex ones. Jack and I discussed this idea in our episode about alternatives to the 60-40 stock bond portfolio.
the permanent portfolio is pretty simple. You know, if you look at, there's sort of four different types of outcomes you can have. You can have an economic expansion, you can have a recession, you can have, and on the price side, you can have inflation and you can have deflation. And so what the permanent portfolio does is it takes four different assets that'll do well in each one of those types of scenarios and it invests 25% in each. So it's got stocks for an expansion, it's got cash and short-term bonds for recession, it's got gold for inflation, and it's got long-term bonds for deflation. And so what happens is this, this ends up being a, a much smoother ride over time because no matter what is going on, you're going to have, you're likely to have something that's doing well. And so the long-term returns of this are actually not too different than a 60-40 portfolio. And the goal is to, you know, by including assets that do well in different types of periods to create a smoother return over time. Yeah, that's great. Um, and now kind of coming into something that's a little bit more, um, I guess, complex or active is the protective asset allocation strategy or also known as PAA. And that's uh, based on a paper uh, protective asset allocation, a simple momentum-based alternative for term deposits. And it was um, developed by these gentlemen, Keller and, uh, is it Koenig? Koenig, yeah. And um, the, the basic idea here, I'll take the first part, Jack, is it starts by basically looking at um, 12 different asset classes. So it uses the S&P 500 or large cap US stocks, Russell 2000, NASDAQ 100, European equities, Japanese equities, emerging market equities, long-term treasury bonds, high yield bonds, corporate bonds, commodities, gold, and real estate. And then it basically will look to allocate to the six asset classes that have the best uh, price momentum or price strength. Um, so it's trying to bring you into the top six asset classes um, based on momentum. But Jack, as we were talking about before the podcast, you know, it's there's uh, another sort of aspect to this portfolio in terms of trying to protect capital, which I'll let you talk about. And then there, there are some, you know, drawbacks to this in terms of its activeness and, and such. Yeah, you know, this is for more, you know, active investors. This is obviously somewhat complicated. This is not, you know, a 60-40 portfolio. This is not the permanent portfolio where you're just allocating 25% to four different asset classes. This is an active portfolio that's making changes. But what it takes advantage of is what we talked about before. You know, these all these inflation hedges have their issues. Commodities have really long periods of underperformance. So what this is doing is it's trying to only invest in asset classes that have momentum. And so, like, commodities is an asset class, for instance, that works very well with trend following. So when, when you sort of couple momentum with commodities, you, you tend to avoid some of these long periods where it's not working. So that, that can be a great asset for when you're when you're incorporating these additional asset classes into a portfolio. But like you said, the, the idea is just of the 12 by the six with the most momentum. And then it also has this concept of a crash protect protection asset. And so the idea is if all 12 assets are have positive momentum, then we just buy the best six. As we start to have less than 12 that has positive momentum, we start to raise our cash position. And once we get where more than six of them don't have positive momentum, we now go 100% into this crash protection asset. And the crash protection asset is either intermediate term treasuries or, or a more short term thing, depending on which one of those has most, the most momentum. So the idea here is we're trying to buy asset classes that are going up. We're trying to take advantage of the principle of momentum. But then we also have this protection on the back end that if things go really bad, um, you know, this thing is going to begin to raise cash and, and potentially go all the way to cash. For equity investors, there are also some lessons we can learn about what works in inflationary environments. We talked to Aaron Stanhope about what he found when he researched this for his excellent paper, The Great Inflation Factors and Stock Returns. And in terms of the factors, you know, you, you found certain factors did better or worse than, you know, certain inflation regimes. But one thing I thought that was really interesting that I, that I think you found in the paper is that shareholder yields seem to do well regardless of the inflation regime. It seemed to do well across the board. Um, why do you think that is? You know, shareholder yield is a really kind of interesting factor. 
Um, it is a play on the capital allocation policies of companies. So it's, we think of it as the combination of a stock's dividend yield and share buybacks over the previous 12 months. And so what it really is, is it's a return of cash or return of capital to shareholders. And when you kind of think about like the menu of options that CEOs have in front of them for capital allocation, it's, it's not a long list. It's, it's like dividends, buybacks, repay debt, investing your existing business or buy another one. That's not all of them. You know, now Tesla's buying Bitcoin also, so that's a different allocation policy. Uh, but that's like, that's kind of like most of it. And when you stack up those in terms of the excess returns that they generate, particularly in the U.S. large cap space, the best by far is um, really buybacks. And when you have the combination of dividends and buybacks together, it's it's really, really powerful. I mentioned that it's it's a return of capital or cash to shareholders. So if you kind of think about being in a position as a company to have excess cash to return it to shareholders, that's a very powerful thing in almost any environment. And so shareholder yield, you know, I mentioned it includes dividend yield. Dividend yield is kind of like a quasi value factor. So there's this whole idea that sort of emerged in the last few years. It's a little bit spurious, doesn't work great on a longer term basis, but it did kind of during the crisis period, which is this idea that value stocks are short duration assets or shorter duration assets and growth stocks are longer duration assets, which is basically, if you go back to, um, sort of, uh, corporate finance, 101 present value analysis, think of Amazon, you know, 15 years ago, they were running loss at year, loss after loss, after loss, year after year, but eventually there was a payout and they started becoming profitable, you know, same thing with. Google and Facebook and, and, um, sort of all the, all the, the fang stocks, whereas value stocks, you know, it's all about their current earnings. And so if you think about those, those streams of cash flows as basically being, um, when you total them all up, the present value of them is a stock's market cap. Well, value stocks proportionally have more in sort of the shorter term cash flows and growth stocks ended up having more value in the longer term cash flows. So anyway, long way of saying shareholder yield, when you look at them on a valuation basis, they kind of tend to be in the cheapest third of stocks overall. So it's kind of a little bit of this value argument that's creeping in for why they do well. Um, and then on top of that, if you think about, again, dividends and share buybacks is sort of like an immediate return of cash that makes it an even shorter duration asset. And so in an inflationary period, um, where you're both. Uh, have cash available to return to shareholders and you're repurchasing where repurchasing shares, hopefully at a cheap multiple, what it actually does is it's kind of like a secondary growth rate on your earnings per share. So you're sort of boosting earnings during a period where the market is going to be seeking earnings growth in excess of inflation. That's kind of like a powerful cocktail. So being cheap, if you believe in this shorter duration thing. Um, and like a secondary growth rate as well. That's all like really, really powerful in the context of a, of an inflationary environment. You alluded to value a little bit already, but outside of shareholder yield, what, what did you find in terms of the, how the major factors worked in, in high inflationary? So you kind of find value does better than growth and the sort of logic behind it really is that, 
um, if you're in an inflationary environment, there's got to be sort of like an extra risk premium for sort of the unknown of what inflation is going to be in the future. Is it going to continue to go up or is it going to go up and then revert again, kind of this idea of inflation expectations. So like in the seventies, you saw, uh, multiples. So let's say like price to earnings basically got cut in half over, over 10, 15 years. So that's a massive headwind to equity returns. Um, and so that's generally the expectation. And you see that in other countries as well, when you have inflation that runs higher, generally multiples compress. Well, and that there's going to be that headwind. And so if you're a value stock and you're already cheaper than the overall market, theoretically, your multiple is going to compress less from an absolute perspective. Um, and so, uh, you know, multiple of 50 on your high flying growth name comes down to 25 versus if you're at 12, um, you know, there's, there's, there's less, there's less, more, more room for, uh, for error that exists there. So, um, that's kind of the logic for, for why we think that value tends to do better in those inflationary environments than, than growth or expensive names. If there is any conclusion to draw from the study of inflation, it is probably that predicting what will happen with it and what to do about it are both very difficult. Colin Roach made this point in our interview with him, and there is probably no better way to conclude our look at inflation than there. I'm wondering how much do you think we understand about what actually causes inflation? And how much do you think we just don't know? So little. I, it's it's actually, it's one of the scariest things that I've kind of concluded about, not just the whole economic profession, but I'm managing portfolios more broadly. To me, it just, it, I think it, it's clear that inflation is a lot more complex than anyone assumes. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's just super unique to each individual economy. And yeah, the scary thing about inflation is that, um, you know, that because we don't know what causes it, I don't know if we have really a great solution for controlling it once it really does start to get out of, out of hand. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.